Hope everyone's had a good holiday weekend. Uh, we sang Start the Service, God Bless America. God, yeah, that's the name of it. God, I was thinking, is that the name of it? it is. Um, I love that song. I can remember after 9 11, uh, all college football shut down, all sports shut down for a little while. And the first game they had back after 9 11. Uh, in Neyland Stadium, I was there, and Tennessee played LSU, and uh, I can remember they brought all the teams out there and kind of stood together and sung, sung that song, and I can just remember 100,000 plus singing that, and it was truly incredible, and just thinking how much God has blessed our country. He truly has, and uh, that was a great day because Tennessee actually won that game, so that was really a great day. Uh, we don't win a whole lot anymore, but hopefully, we're coming back, though. We are coming back. Um, this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 10. going to do a two-week study from Acts 10. Now, we just finished Acts 12, and you may be thinking, now, why are we going backwards? Why wouldn't we start in Acts 10 and kind of move forward to Acts 12? Well, originally, when I decided to, to preach from Acts 12, I only thought I was preaching twice. And then uh, with Tommy, with the sickness and everything, it, it turned into to longer uh, just want to let you know real quick, and he's probably watching right now, so i got to be careful what I say about Tommy, but uh, he is doing better. I, I got a text from him today. Him and Melinda are both doing much better. Fevers are gone, so that is a, a, a blessing. Uh, Clifta is still very sick, though, so I encourage you to continue to pray, really for all of them, but especially Clifta, as she still runs a fever. Had to go to the hospital here recently, but uh, we're praying that God would just slowly but surely heal her body also. So encourage you to remember uh, that entire family in your prayers. So again, today we're going to be looking, though, at Acts 10. And let me say just a quick word about Acts 10. Um, I actually preached from Acts 10 right before the pandemic hit. I did on a Wednesday night. I went back and looked. I think there were 48 people here. Uh, and I shared with the intention of doing the second part. And the pandemic hit, and I never got to do the second part. So uh, I'm actually going to do the first part again today, and we'll finish it next week. Because it's a very important chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, because the gospel finally gets to the Gentiles. And that's why it's so important. So the book of Acts is the only book that we have in the Bible that really chronicles the early church from the ascension when Jesus ascended into heaven, um, for the next three decades, it chronicles what happened to the early church. And we see how really a small group of frightened men, you remember the story after Jesus was crucified? Uh, they're locked up in a small room in, in Jerusalem, hiding out, and Jesus arises and he comes and he appears in the room. They were scared to death. How that group of frightened men went from that state to later really transforming the entire Roman Empire by getting the gospel out and giving their lives for the gospel. And that's what the book of Acts chronicles. And just to kind of give you a timeline, I like timelines. I was a history major at Bryan, and I like history. My, my family kind of thinks I'm a nerd at times because I like watching uh, Smithsonian Channel. I mentioned that in the first service too. I I get up early on Saturday mornings and we'll turn on and they profile states, aerial America. And I, to me, it's fascinating. I mean, not, now some of it's not fascinating, but just to learn some stuff. I mean, I like that kind of stuff. 
But I like to kind of know where all this fits together. So kind of a timeline of this is the Ascension, 33 A.D. That's Acts chapter 1. And now today we're going to be in Acts 10. That's about 38, 39. We don't know for sure, but right in that time period is when this takes place. Last week we looked at Acts 12, and that was 43, 44 A.D. We know that because King Herod Agrippa I was... Uh, he was on the throne just from 41 to 44, and he died in 44, and that's actually recorded in Acts 12. So that kind of gives us a timeline of what we're looking at. So today, somewhere around 38, 39 A.D., Acts chapter 10. The apostles of Jesus Christ are sharing the gospel. The church is spreading like wildfire. There's only one issue. It is only spreading among the Jews. The prejudice of the Jews towards the Gentiles had kept the gospel bottled up. This culture, much like our culture today, suffered from prejudice mindsets. Chuck Swindoll, the pastor and a famous pastor and also a former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, stated this, For all the many differences, such as race, creed, culture, gender, nationality, people all over the world have at least one thing in common— Prejudiced. It's a stubborn, thorny weed that grows in every heart. Swindoll writes, cut it down, poison its leaves, or pull it out by the roots. And somehow it seems to come back. It's a universal problem that believers need to ask God to uproot in every heart. We're going to see that Peter struggled with prejudice against the Gentiles. But God changed his heart. In the same way, we pray today that God would free us from prejudiced hearts and minds against others of different race or culture. And we may ask the question, why were the Jews so prejudiced against the Gentiles? When we examine the Old Testament, we see that God set apart for himself a people because of the depravity of man, man was falling further and further away from God. So God set himself apart of people. He chose Abraham to be the father of that nation. He chose the Israelites so that they would be a blessing to the entire world. The problem was that the Jewish people didn't understand that they were to be a blessing to the entire world. Instead, they twisted God's choice of their people into a favoritism became filled with racial pride and hatred towards others. They viewed the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions to further separate them from the Gentiles. No Jewish man or woman would ever be caught in a home of a Gentile. Never. Peter was, of course, raised his entire life ingrained in Jewish traditions, including legalism and superiority of the Jewish race. To Peter and other Jews, the Gentiles and the Samaritans, which were half Jew and half Gentile, were nothing but pagan, unclean people, unworthy of the gospel. A few examples of things that happened during this time. The Jews would do ceremonial washing before they would eat to make sure that they were clean. The reason was they wanted to make sure that nothing they had touched 
or possibly they had rubbed up even against a Gentile. If they had their hands unwashed, they would be undefiled. And that means anything they ate, they felt like would make them also unclean. So they would do a ceremonial washing every time before they would eat to make sure they didn't have any Gentile on them. Milk drawn from a cow by Gentile hands was not allowed to be consumed by a Jew. Bread made by Gentile hands can never be used or eaten by Jews. Cooking utensils that they were bought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water before they could be used. I mean, I could go on and on and on to show you the prejudice that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the most despised location in the world to you? Which nation, which city, or possibly even what part of our town could you personally do without? Take a moment to think about that. And then my next question would be, why did you pick that place? Now imagine traveling to that location, working to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people that live there. That's exactly what God calls Peter to do in Acts chapter 10. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, I pray that, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft to your word, that you would work, that you would move in our hearts. God, that you would... Speak truth to us through Acts chapter 10. That we can see that the gospel is meant for all people. And it's our duty to share it with everybody. God, please, today, just speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're doing the first half, and next week we'll finish. But today we want to look at Acts 10, 1 through 8. It says in verse 1, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, first of all, this place, was Caesarea, it was a coastal town in the northwest portion of Samaria. We've actually got a map that, that maybe we can show here. So I realized that the writing was going to be too small for you to actually read, so let me just kind of... Uh, show you what's what. So the circle, the red circle is Caesarea. You'll see it's in the northwest corner of Samaria. On the coast is where it's located. There's another uh, city that we're going to look at a little bit later. It's the city of Joppa. That's where Peter's located. That's where the square is. It's 31 miles uh, down the coast is where Peter was living. Then I also put a, uh, a star. That's where Jerusalem's located. Just to kind of give you some, some uh, reference there. You can know where Jerusalem was. Joppa, Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman occupation of Israel. So when we think of the capital, we think of Jerusalem, but not for the Romans. When they came and occupied the land, Caesarea was their capital. It was a military town. It was a town where all the, the main military people would live. For instance, Pontius Pilate. That's where he lived. Now we come across Pontius Pilate in a trial of Jesus, and he's in Jerusalem. Well, his main responsibility is to keep peace. So anytime they would have a big feast or festival in Jerusalem, that's where he would be to make sure his soldiers were keeping everything in control. 
He lived in Caesarea. All the military people lived in Caesarea. I mean, it made sense for Caesarea because it's so close to the coast, they could bring supplies and they could bring soldiers anytime into their capital city. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. We talked about him some last week. Herod the Great, of course, was on the throne when Jesus was born. Herod the Great built this city in 25, or started to build this city in 25 B.C. And it took him about 12 years to build. He built it to honor Caesar Augustus. The Jewish people hated Caesarea and considered it a place of ungodliness. Remember, it was a town full of primarily Gentiles and some Samaritans, which were a mix of Jews and Gentiles. A few Jews lived there, but the Jewish people hated Caesarea. And I think it's important for us to understand the way Peter would have viewed people in Caesarea. He'd have looked at people in Caesarea as the worst scum of the earth. We're introduced to a person here, Cornelius. We're told two things about his position in the Roman army. First of all, we're told he's a centurion. That was like a captain of the occupying Roman army. Centurions normally had to work their way up the ranks. Some Roman officers were given positions maybe because of family connections or whatever, but not centurions. Typically, they had to start at the bottom and work their way up. Centurions were really the position between just the regular Roman soldiers and the hierarchy Roman officers. They were the kind of guy between. Centurions typically oversaw about 100 soldiers. They normally were paid about five times the amount of a normal Roman soldier. Centurions were viewed as being wealthy, and they had great influences in their communities. Satyrians normally were appointed to their position because of bravery, loyalty, or their character. And they would be appointed to a city, and they would serve there in that city for a 20-year term. Starting sometimes as early as their late teenagers, they'd be appointed to a place to serve to their late 30s. Now, we're not told the age of Cornelius. We're not told how long he had been there. But it seems that he had been there a while. He has great influence in Caesarea. And we also read, in just a moment, we're going to read that he has a family. So more likely, Cornelius had been there a while, probably in the back half of his term serving. It also tells us that he was a member of the Italian cohort. The Italian cohort was some of the most respected and elite members of the social class in Rome. Before the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great when he was on the throne, he would conquer land. And many times they would just eliminate the leaders of the land, have them executed. But later, Alexander the Great gave the conquered leaders a choice. You can either be killed or you can serve faithfully in my army. Well, the Romans also decided that was a good philosophy. So some of the leaders that chose to live, the Italian cohort, would be leaders over those leaders. So they basically were leaders over former leaders. Cornelius here was a man with great authority in Caesarea. Verse 2, it says some things about his character. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the, to the people, and prayed continually to God. So we're told three things about the man Cornelius. Number one, 
a devout man who feared God with his household. Cornelius was different than most of the, the Romans. He only believed in one God. Interesting that it also says that his household believed. Cornelius must have been a man that led by example. He trusted in the Yahweh God, and he must have done it with integrity because his family also trusted in Yahweh God. Now keep in mind, just like in our country, in America, today children would have had plenty of other pagan gods and goddesses to choose from. But they followed their dad's example. I think that shows he was a man of integrity. Cornelius, probably from what a Gentile could have done, attended the synagogue. As a Gentile, that would have been limited, but he did what he could because he had enormous respect for Judaism. He respected their moral and ethical standards and codes. The Bible says that he gave generously. That he gave alms generously. That means he helped the poor. And it's interesting, it uses the word generously. He was the kind of guy that gave a lot. And the community knew that he was a faithful man that gave generously. The Bible also says that he prayed continually to God. The author of this book, Luke, he wants us to see the religious devotion of Cornelius. He was a God-fearer. He gave to the poor. He prayed continually. Does Cornelius here in verse 2 look like someone that was a believer? I mean, in America today, he would pass as a Christian. Yet he had never heard the gospel. He was definitely a moral, upright man, especially compared to the Romans. But he was not a believer at this point. Cornelius lived some wonderful traits in his life. But none of those traits alone will save a man from hell. Tragically, there will be many devout men and women in hell because they refuse to trust in Christ and instead have trusted in their morality. If being an upright, moral man is all it took to get to heaven, then Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was totally unnecessary. But it's not enough. Because we see in other verses in the Bible, like for instance, Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in our heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only through Christ. Jesus himself said it. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're a moral person, that's great. It's great to be a kind person. It's great to be a generous person. But understand, it's only through the blood of Christ that we get forgiveness. Cornelius didn't know about Christ. He didn't know about the blood of Christ at this point. So he was not a follower. But God was working to send the gospel to him. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in the vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. The Bible tells us it was about 3 p.m. That would have been about the ninth hour of the day that an angel appeared to Cornelius in a vision. And it was typical for the Jews. He wasn't a Jew, but he lived his life like the Jews. 
to do an afternoon prayer where they would go and they would pray to God. So that was typical for him to do that and pray. But this was not a typical day. Because on this day, an angel of God appears to him in broad daylight. And I love what the Bible says. It uses the word he saw clearly. There was no confusion about what he was seeing. He knew he was seeing from God. Verse 4, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Cornelius was, of course, scared to death. Wouldn't you be? An angel's right in front of him. An angel says, Your prayers and your alms have been seen by God. He's seen your good works. They've been like a memorial that's come before him. He's seen them. Verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. The angel gives Cornelius direct orders. Cornelius is a military guy. He's used to direct orders. The angel gives him his direct orders. Send men down to Joppa, 31 miles down the road, to get a man named Simon, who's called Peter. The angel tells Cornelius exactly where to go in Joppa to find him. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. See, God had a very detailed plan he lays out here for Cornelius. Go get Simon, who's called Peter. And you'll find him with a guy named Simon the Tanner. That's where he's standing. And his house is close to the sea. He doesn't give him an address, which I said in the first service, there probably wasn't any addresses to give. But he says, this is how you're going to find him. Now, the angel says he's staying with Simon the Tanner. Tanners needed a good supply of water for the type of work. A tanner's house was very easy to find because of the smell associated with being a tanner. You could have asked anybody a mile away where Simon the Tanner lived. And they would have probably said, well, he lives down this road. Take a right and follow your nose. You'll find where Simon the Tanner lives. Now, a little side note. Most Jews despised tanners because they dealt with the flesh of dead animals. And they felt like that was unclean. So no self-respecting Jew would have ever done this type of work or hung out with somebody that was a tanner. But here is Peter living with Simon the Tanner. Could it be that God was slowly melting down some of the Jewish legalism and prejudice in Peter's heart? Cornelius is getting ready to send for Simon Peter to come to him. But he really doesn't even know why. The angel didn't tell him necessarily why. He just told him, do this. Send for him. So that's exactly what he does. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his, two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius obeys the angel without hesitation. He gets two servants and a soldier for protection. He tells them everything that the angel has said to him. And he sends them to Joppa to find Simon Peter. 
Now, I was thinking about just the fact that what God did here to, to open the door for Cornelius to hear the gospel. He uses a vision. I don't think Cornelius has ever seen a vision from God before. He uses a vision to get his attention. This wasn't some hallucination. He knew it was from God what he was seeing. Does things like that still happen today? I mean, this is the first century. But in the 21st century, does God still do things like that today? Does he still use visions? You know, we talked about last week, last two weeks, about God doing miraculous things, rescuing Peter from jail. And we talked about, does God still do things like that today? Does he still send visions? The answer is yes, he does. In the spring of 2012, I attended the Gospel Coalition Conference in Orlando, Florida. And Zach actually was with me, Zach Wyatt. Uh, and before each speaker shared from God's Word during that conference, someone would share a testimony. All the people sharing at that conference were former Muslims from the Middle East. Each one of them, and I think there were ten total, shared about their conversion experience over that three-day conference. All of them shared how God had sent them visions how God had done supernatural things that humanly you can't explain so that they could hear and understand the gospel. Because they were ingrained in Islam. They knew nothing about the gospel. And God did supernatural things to open them to the gospel. So the answer is, is God still doing supernatural things? Absolutely. He does. He still works in miraculous ways. And when we move forward to next week, as we close out the chapter, we're going to see God not only did something supernaturally for Cornelius, he does has to do something supernaturally for Peter for, before Peter will go to see Cornelius. I mentioned earlier that Cornelius, because of his morality, would have passed as a believer today in America, even without knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the way he lived his life, because of his kindness to others, giving, because he, he was a man that apparently had a lot of integrity because his kids followed his faith. You know, my theory is that people could be in the church. People could hear the gospel open every single week and preached. People could have the Bible available to them to read every single day, yet they could totally miss the gospel's message and instead be trusted in their own morality for their salvation. Jesus said it in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Christ. It's not through faithful church attendance. It's not through giving to help the poor. It's not through being moral. It's not through, I can mention all kinds of things. Those are great. But the problem is we've got a sin problem. 
And unless someone dies in our place, unless someone was in atonement for our sins, we're going to have to pay for our own sins. And that's what place called hell. But God has provided a way through his son's death that we can be forgiven. My question to you as I close this morning, have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? And you're living your life for him today. If not, I would plead to you to come to Christ because he is the only one that can get us to the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we serve a supernatural working God today. God, you're, you're all-powerful and you're king. And God, may we not be confused with morality, thinking that that's all we need is to be a moral person. All we need is to good, do good works. And if we do that, then we'll be okay. Lord, I'm, I'm afraid too many people are trusting in that. And that's a false trust. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only because of his sacrifice that we can be forgiven and one day spend eternity with you in heaven. So God, please, if there's anyone here today or anyone watching today online that has not trusted you as our Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would move in our heart. You would draw them to yourself. Just like you're going to do with Cornelius, as we're going to see next week, how you changed this life. Lord, I pray that you would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.